0: Well, we we come to the end of this message series this month that we have been talking about some really what we call apologetic issues, and so we talked about the resurrection, we talked about the existence of God, talked about um, Jesus in relation to world religions. Um, we really are wrapping up with with in some respects, probably the most challenging and uh, confounding and and perplexing realities in our world today, and that's the presence of evil. Um, I don't think any of us would deny as we look at the world today that there are evil things that happen. Uh, There are evil people that make evil things happen. Uh, Bad things happen not just to bad people. Bad things happen to good people, to innocent people, to helpless people. How do we explain that? How, how do we account for evil in this world in which we are living? And when you start talking about the subject of evil, then it raises in a lot of people's minds a lot of different questions, uh, one of which is, did God create evil? Or is it, do we have these two entities, as, as so much of mythology is, of, of a God of evil and a God of good that are constantly battling, and you really don't know who's going to win in the end? Or this one, if God is all-loving, why does he allow evil? Or if God is all-powerful, why doesn't he stop evil? I think for Christians, there, there are some other questions that come to, to, to mind, and that is, is there a redemptive purpose possible in suffering and in evil? Uh, or how should we speak about the presence and pervasiveness of evil in our culture and in our world today? Now, I have to tell you from the very start, there aren't easy pat answers to those questions. Um, There are some limited answers. We see some some things from Scripture to help give us some kind of a framework there. Uh, But we'll always struggle in this area because we are finite people wrestling with things from an infinite God and His purposes and the way that He does things. Here's how I'm going to go at the subject this morning. I'm going to talk about evil in the past, and then I'm going to jump and talk about evil in the future, and then I'm going to circle around and come back to the middle and talk about evil in the present. Because I think an understanding of evil in our world today must be informed by those two things, the past, where did evil originate, where did it begin, and the end, what's ultimately going to happen to evil? What's the ultimate outcome of evil, and I think it's important that we know that. So where where did evil originate? If God didn't create evil, and the Bible is very clear that there's no evil in God, he couldn't have created evil, then where did it come from? Where did it begin? Well, the Bible indicates that God created angelic beings, and these beings were created to serve God, to worship God, And amongst those he created was one known as Lucifer. It's very possible that Lucifer was one of the archangels, of the highest level of angels, and we'll see from Scripture why that might be true. Lucifer led a revolt in heaven against God. And there are two Old Testament passages that give some hint to that. They describe human rulers, but there's no way that that could be the total intent of those passages. So we're going to look at those. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 28. And if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, that I can tell you is page 907. If you're on your own Bible or your personal device there, good luck. Ezekiel 28. The chapter starts clearly talking about a human ruler, but it's almost like there's a little bit of a shift when he gets partway through. And so I pick up the text in chapter 28 of Ezekiel and verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet or seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst it consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Ezekiel lived in the 6th century BC. He grew up in Jerusalem and was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar to, to Babylon. And he prophesied there for about 22 years. Now in this passage he is talking about an historical figure, the III, who was the ruler of the Phoenician seaport of Tyre. And this man was a man who is filled with pride Uh, But there are probably dual persons in mind here. One is this ruler of Tyre, and maybe indwelt by Satan, but also Satan himself. Again, you can't see those things being written just about a human ruler. Satan here, Lucifer, is referred to as an anointed cherub. Now, when you read through your Bible, you discover the cherubs are angelic beings of high rank. Uh, we see them associated with guarding the holiness of God. They have to do with the presence of God, with the very glory uh, of God, the throne of God. We also see in Scripture them proclaiming the righteousness of God before his throne. And then there's an added thing here. He's called anointed, which would seem to indicate special favor with God. Donald Gray Barnhouse, speaking about Satan as the epitome of God's creation, writes this, He awoke in the first moment of his existence in the full-orbed beauty and power of his exalted position, surrounded by all the magnificence which God gave him. He saw himself as above all the hosts in power, wisdom, and beauty. Only at the throne of God itself did he see more than he himself possessed. And it is possible that even that was in some sense not fully visible to the eyes of the creation. Before his fall, he may be said to have occupied the role of prime minister for God, ruling possibly over the universe, but certainly over this world. So Ezekiel gives us maybe some insights into the character of this one who was created as a cherub, anointed of God, favored of God. Now let's go back a few books to the book of Isaiah, Chapter 14, page 7:35. And notice what Isaiah says. He's prophesying in the eighth century BC, So a couple hundred years earlier than Ezekiel. And in chapter 14, I'm going to start reading at verse 12, "How you've fallen from heaven, O daystar, son of dawn, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low." You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, at the time that Isaiah's writing, it's the Assyrians that are the immediate enemy and threat to Israel. But gradually, the Babylonians gain power over the Assyrians. And so here is Isaiah predicting that God is going to use Babylon to punish his people who've disobeyed him, who've deserted him. He also predicts then that God is going to bring judgment on Babylon. But this one that he refers to here, he calls day star or possibly morning star. The Latin equivalent for that is Lucifer. That's where we get Lucifer. But here pride enters into the heart of Lucifer such that he wants to replace God. He wants to be God. And so it's like he shakes his fist in the face of God and says, I will replace you. Now remember, everything that God created was good. It was perfect. It was right. But it would appear from these passages that God created angelic beings with at least one opportunity of moral choice. The scriptures seem to indicate that a third of the angels in heaven aligned themselves with Lucifer and joined in his rebellion and were cast out of heaven. Now, if all that God created is good, then we have to logically say that evil does not exist in and of itself but it's simply a distortion or a perversion of the good that God created. So think about it like that. Evil is simply perverted goodness. The early church father, Augustine, argued that the evil that exists does not exist in and of itself, but only as a corruption or privation of good things which God has created. So when you think of, as the Bible describes, hell, hell is simply the absence of good, the absence of God's presence, and all that will go with that in the scriptural viewpoint. It's this angelic being, he goes by the name of Satan, Lucifer, Tempter, the devil in the New Testament, Uh, he's the one that introduces evil into the human environment by leading Adam and Eve into rebellion in their temptation, leading them to choose to be independent of their creator. And in some respects, just like Lucifer, their choice to be like God, to be God, to replace God in their lives in that way. And the consequences we see that still playing out in our world today. Satan remains active today. Uh, he, He is described in Scripture in a number of ways, a ruler of demons, as the tempter, as a murderer, as the father of lies, as the prince of the power of the air. You just see with these titles, these descriptions, some of the way that he operates. So if I can understand Scripture correctly, that tells me where evil enters into the world. What about its end, though? Well, we're going to look at some different passages. If you turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 13, page 1040. Jesus is in a midst here of telling a number of parables about the kingdom. And he talks about the sower and the seed. He talks about the mustard seed and and, uh, hidden treasure, the pearl of great price. But right in the middle of that, in chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He continues to tell parables, but then we pick up in verse 36 that after Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. But the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. I think the point of the parable is this. Though it might seem otherwise in the present, there is a future coming when God himself will deal with evil and evildoers, that the books will be balanced. It's so easy in the present, and that's why we're looking here at the end first. It's so easy in the present to forget that there is an ultimate end to evil, end to the evil one. And there will come a day when evil will be destroyed along with all evildoers. For that, we really have to go to the end of the Bible. Go to the book of Revelation. All the way to the last book, Revelation chapter 20. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled there for his faith. God is giving him these visions of future times, things to come. And in one of them, it, it, it has to do after a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. Then we read this in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then all the unbelieving dead, he says, are raised from the dead and they stand before this great white throne of judgment and their names are not found written in the book of life and they themselves are cast into the lake of fire. But John goes on then to give a description which is the encouragement for those who trusted in Christ because he goes on in chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And here it is, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the prophetic view that we have of the future in relation to evil and evildoers wrongs, injustices, all those things that we just cringe when we see today, we need to know there will be an end and God will bring it to an end in his time. But in the meantime, we're stuck in the middle, right? We're living in the present. Uh, we, We are living in a day where we can see evil things all around us. Um, I swear, I've got to quit reading the newspaper. Um, got to quit watching the news. Uh, it, it's depressing, isn't it? And it's perplexing as we think, well, God, why do you allow this stuff to go on? Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Evil in our world takes two forms. One is moral evil. You know, we see it, we also call it by names like sin, lawlessness, moral pollution, disobedience, self-centeredness. Uh, we're well acquainted with all the consequences that come from, from evil like that. And then there's a second type of evil, which is physical evil. <coughs> Floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and, and earthquakes, you know, things that just, in many respects, seem to have no explanation to them. But innocent people suffer, and, and we say that that is evil. And so we wrestle with the question, why does God allow these evil things to happen? I think to at least begin with an understanding, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning of human history. That when God created Adam and Eve, he created them with this wonderful capacity of choice. I think this has a lot to say about being created in the image of God. And he gives people, human beings, the opportunity to choose. And this moral, the power of moral choice can be exercised towards godliness or towards ungodliness. Now, sadly, with Adam and Eve, it went toward the latter. And so we've lived with the consequences. You and I sin because we're sinners. It comes out of our being tied to Adam. I think when we're trying to wrestle with the subject of evil, we also need to distinguish between the permission of evil and the promotion of evil. In other words, while God has permitted evil to exist, explicable or inexplicable, he does not promote evil. Okay? While he permits evil, he doesn't cause evil. To do that wouldn't be God, certainly the God of the Bible. If you think in a very simplistic way of a human example, again, somehow in the mind of God, we see that there is a greater good and that he allows these things to happen ultimately toward that greater good. It's a little bit maybe like a parent uh, who, who desires the greater good of a child learning to walk. But to do that is to allow that child to suffer bumps and bruises and scrapes and black eyes and cuts for the greater good of learning to walk. I know, illustrations break down. Stay with me. Um, John Wenham, in his book, The Enigma of Evil, writes, Though moral evil is contrary to God's will, he permits both it and its consequences Indeed, he not only permits its consequences, he sends them for holy, good, and loving reasons, even when those reasons are hidden from us. You know, I don't know, honestly, how you make any sense of the world in which we live and of evil and suffering without acknowledging a historic fall of sin in Genesis 3. That we are fallen people living in a fallen world. I, I, I don't know how else we get that. We, each of us is aware and capable uh, of evil. We know that. We know what's in our heart. Uh, and good people do those things. But that's the reality of being fallen people in a fallen world. Dr. Norm Geisler, in his book, The Roots of Evil, uh, talks about reasons for physical evil that he believes explains virtually all evil in the world. And here's what he, he suggests. Uh, some physical evil comes to us directly from our own free choices, and we know that with freedoms that we have to choose how we live, how we act, you know, come consequences, come results. So, you know, a heavy smoker may develop lung cancer. Uh, you, you have, uh, if you choose to overeat, you know, you may become obese and that's going to have all kinds of health issues in there. Uh, a person chooses to drive drunk may be the cause of an accident, harm to himself or to others. You know, these forms of suffering come as a result of the choices that God has given us the freedom to make. There are also some physical evils that come to us indirectly from the exercise of our freedom. I mean, you have freedom to sit around all day and be gainfully unemployed. But you know what often comes with that is poverty. And so there's indirectly results and consequences that come from that. Some physical evils come to us directly from the free choices of others. In a world of free choices, a number of evils are not only possible, they are real. Child abuse, spousal abuse, victims of crimes, whatever they might be. It's because of the actions that others choose to take. And then there's some physical evil that comes to us indirectly from the free choices of others. If you think about it, your ancestors have made choices on where they would live, what they would do, there are some choices that you had nothing to do with, but you live with some of the consequences that come on down from all that time. Let's pivot just a moment here. Let, let's let's Because let, I, I really think we've got to get to this. How are we going to view evil and suffering from a biblical perspective? Obviously, we don't have tons of time to go into all of that, but I want to suggest that is it possible that we can see suffering in a way that it might promote spiritual gain, spiritual benefits, spiritual growth. That there's a redemptive purpose and outcome for the Christian who's trusting in God's providence and in his sovereignty. Surely that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote those familiar verses to the Christians in Rome. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now listen, Paul does not say all things are good. That's not what the text says. But that God who is sovereign, God who reigns in his universe, can take anything that happens in our lives and can use them for our ultimate good and for his glory. You know, we, we, we have to see and understand his good purpose in this lifetime. But whether we do or not, we have to remember that there is a great benefit coming in the future. You know, we're challenged when we see Eva when bad things happen, aren't we? I mean, I remember when my, and I won't tell you the whole story but I remember when my, my brother-in-law was critically burned in an accident. It was an explosion. He was a transport driver for Conoco Oil Company and pulled up to, to load his tanker, and, and there was two already up on the loading dock, so he left his truck down below, left it, the engine running and one of the men up on the loading dock actually overflowed the fuel tank, and the fuel began to run down the hill toward his truck. Uh, The fumes going ahead, he he heard his engine racing, so he ran down to shut it off, and just as he got to the door, it exploded. He's on fire. Uh, The shock of the the wave from, from the explosion just laid everybody else flat. So here he is, he's on fire, he's tearing his burning clothing off, he's running out the gate, of the loading area and a 16-year-old who had just got his driver's license stopped and picked him up and took him to the nearest town. Um, We heard about what had happened. My sister, they had a six-month-old and my parents had gotten down there right before he left. They flew him to the University of Iowa Medical Unit to the burn unit there. Uh, We were out in Colorado with Campus Crusade staff training conference and called, got a hold of a doctor who said first diagnosis, Third degree burns, 65% of the body. Uh, That's all he would tell us. So my sister and my parents left without knowing whether he was living or dead. Well, a week later, he was still alive, and so we went back to see what was happening. Uh, we went in; we were going to go in to see him. My mom was a nurse, kind of warned us, "Listen, they, you know, he's wrapped. He's going to be wrapped up like a mummy. Uh, they, they, they uh, you know, they lose the, the the skin, so there's the cold. Um, they they treated at the hospital there with chemicals that turned everything black, looked like a field hospital in a war zone." uh, But just so we would know what to expect. So we walked in. There he is. He's laying on the bed, you know, shaking. uh, Literally wrapped from the tip of his head to the bottom of his feet. Two holes cut out for his eyes, his nose, his mouth. We walked in. Here's the first thing that he said to us. Did they tell you what happened to me? He said, when I was on fire, running out the gate, I gave my life to Christ. Now, when I'm struggling back in Colorado, with I don't know that. All, all, all I know is I'm thinking, God, why does this happen? Why did it happen to our family? Why, you know, injust, unjust, right? I mean, we do that. But we don't know, is there possibly a greater good that God would bring out? I and mean, this is a very clear example of a greater good. Um, he survived. Uh, they have five kids, 18 grandkids. Uh, but he would say today, with the terrible physical suffering of that, if I had to go through that again, I would, to come to know Christ. Um, You know, sometimes God allows evil because he has a greater good in there. We often can't see God's work behind the scenes, you know, way out in the future or in the lives of others, but we can trust that he's at work according to his perfect will. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, when you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust God's heart. John Wenham says, it is sometimes hard for us to believe in God's justice. And it might seem harder still to believe in his love. And yet it was in the context of the world's most heinous sin that God demonstrated his love dramatically, unforgettably, and finally. Let me just read one closing paragraph here from his book, The Enigma of Evil. No Christian dare doubt God's goodness in permitting the most grievous suffering when he remembers the means which God chose for the overthrow of evil. It was in the depth of human agony that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not only tortured in body and forsaken by his friends, but cut off from his father and become a curse for us. He suffered what no other man has suffered. But in dying, he won the decisive battle against human sin and against the cosmic hosts of wickedness which have enslaved the world. On the cross, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them triumphing over them. What an amazing thing that God should choose this little planet as the scene of his final conflict with evil. What a reassuring thing that he should have chosen suffering as a means to the accomplishing of his ends. What a source of strength to know that he does not ask of us more than he was prepared to give himself evil. But God has a plan. God will bring it to an end. Well, we need to dialogue a little bit about that. Let me pray, and then we'll go to that. Lord, thank you that you are a good Father. And uh, even though we don't know, and, and we admit we don't know, we don't understand, that you've allowed evil to thrive for a time, seemingly sometimes even to be running on ahead. But we believe your word, Father, that you will one day, Uh, bring evil to an end, that you will set all wrongs right. And Lord, your work in our lives and what might even appear to be evil, I'm mindful of Joseph, saying to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Would you give us eyes of faith, Lord, to see that you might bring good out of every evil. And we just are gonna have to trust you in the meantime and wait on you to work. May we have that patient face and trust. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.